This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello. Hi. Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. I'm Lisa Traeger. And every week we talk about an episode of SVU. We talk about the crime it's based on. And then we have a special guest from the episode. And today is no exception. It's going to be hot. Um, So just to be transparent, we are recording this episode a little bit ahead of time because by the time you hear this episode, I will have given birth to a human being um, and I have to make sure that it can, you know, eat and sleep. And I I, I'm just a little busy. So uh, we're just recording this one intro a little bit ahead of time. How do you feel days before? um You'll have another baby. What are you doing? Uh, I mean, I'm just kind of trying to get little projects done around the house. Like, I'm just trying to get things like we're basically set. I mean, we have all the stuff we need because we just had another kid two years ago. So, you know, it's just kind of like a sit and wait situation. But I am ready to be done. And um, I'd love to be able to just turn over in my sleep without help or pain. You know, it'd be fun. Yeah, that's a that's a minimal <laughs> wish, you know, <laughs> just to not have an alien. <laughs> I don't have. Yeah, I don't have big dreams. Um, Are you nervous? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of nervous to see how it's different from before, because it's like going to be a little bit of a different process. They're not doing exactly the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, and like last time I did have some complications, like my epidural did wear off and I felt a lot more than I was supposed to feel. So I'm hoping that now going in with that knowledge of how my body reacts to an epidural that I can that I can avoid that happening. They are so stingy with drugs. My friend, unfortunately, was just in the hospital with some health problems and they are stingy. They're so scared of opioid addiction. And it's like. Just give her more drugs. She's in pain. <laughs> it's like you have to convince them. It's like my I just gave birth. Give me the drugs. What yeah. the fuck? I don't know how addictive an epidural is, but you know. Uh, <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, yeah, isn't it a giant needle shot? You can't. Yeah, it's like a huge shot in your that. spine, basically. Ugh. <laughs> uh, how did uh Jared out? Is he ready to tell you what to do? I think he's ready. I think he was a little bit traumatized by the first birth. So I think now he's ready for the second one because he knows what he's getting into this time. But we'll see. But he was traumatized. He was the first time. Uh, I'm more um, excited to kind of see how Rosie reacts to the new the new roommate. (laughs) She's going to beat the shit out of this baby. Yeah, you know, we have a good friend who has two daughters and they're Rosie's like best friends. And the youngest one, Fiona, is so sweet. And Rosie's obsessed with her and talks about her all the time. But she thinks that a cool way to express her love for Fiona is to push her. 
and she pushes her all the time and she like smiles while she does it like a full serial killer like she's just like i love fifi boop then like just pushes her over like so i don't know what's gonna happen with this new baby but we gotta be on we gotta be on alert um but you're giving like rosie a present like it's from the baby yes yes i gotta go buy that tomorrow actually (laughs) what are you gonna get her i don't know i'm gonna go to like a toy store i'm gonna go to this toy store that they that those kids all love and see what i see what pops out See what speaks to you. Like, yeah. what would a little baby inside in utero <laughs> get her sister? <laughs> what are the things that you were most shocked by the first time you gave birth that you'll be chill about now? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I wasn't that like shocked by anything. I just had some, there were just like a couple of little complications, like nothing serious. And I'm just like hoping none of that like will happen again. But were you still bossy or did did you listen to the doctor? No, no, I listened to the doctor, but I bossed Jared. <laughs> I bossed Jared around. A <laughs> well, you gotta. Yeah. He's there to serve. Like somebody like I apparently Jared said I was making so many jokes and like um and that no, like not during the push, like afterwards when they were like fixing me up. And Jared said that at one point, one of the doctors was like, oh, it's hot in here. And, and I go, Jared will fan you like I was just offering Jared's like he was fanning me. <laughs> I was like offering him like my assistant to fan people, which is, you know, emasculating and I probably shouldn't have done, but it's my day. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. (laughs) Yeah, no. Once you give birth, I think you can do whatever you want. I think it's shocking. It's honestly shocking as a whole society that dudes haven't been like, oh, damn, that sucks. Let's be nicer to these ladies and give them daycare at work. Like I just I really but I think it's because they're jealous because they know that they're worthless in the grand scheme of life. But it is so crazy when people or I know someone whose uncle has not changed any of his two children's diapers not once yeah. jared was just talking last night to our friend's parents being like my parents he was like my dad never did anything to help with the kids like he barely changed a diaper he was like i work you stay at home i mean you know they were it was a different dynamic for them but like still i just don't get how that is even a thing that like that is proof enough that the patriarchy is inherently evil that you see people pushing babies out of their body and then feeding them. And you're like, why don't we hit these women? Like, I I just don't understand. Like, let's not pay them and let's treat them like shit. And then you guys need to like sweep also. It's just, um, it's just wild. Yeah. But yeah. Instead of being like, what can I do for you? Totally. So that's just my thoughts on what I think (laughs) about a thing I'll never do just to really quickly change the subject. I'm not, I think you saw this in our inbox, but we got a very, very interesting detailed, um, amazing message. No, we actually both responded at the same time, which is one of my favorite things is when we're both (laughs) on the Instagram and responding at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. A former felon wrote to us probably like four or five paragraphs um, with information on where white Jews would land in which gang we would land in in prison yes if you'll remember a couple episodes back we were talking about how we were nervous that we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't be able to fall in with the Aryan nation so like who what you know where do Jewish women or Jewish people go in uh prison gangs and he gave us a very very interesting um uh take on it let me see. He said, generally, the white groups would accept Jewish people so long as they pass as white. The more ethnic you look, the more you'd have to join the others, which is essentially anyone non-white, black, Latino. In my adventures through the system, this person usually rolls with blacks as brothers and others. 
as we're usually outnumbered by the whites, Latinos, at least here in Southern California. I love this guy. He's like giving us the full fucking breakdown. It's so great. And he said he did know two self-hating Jews who went full-fledged neo-Nazi and got the 8-8 tattoos, like what we were talking about in that episode. That was from um, Fault, the, that the two older brothers were in jail and the one guy had the 8-8 on his hand because he was like, I got to fit in somewhere, right? Um, now, I have to mention that the whites, or woods as they go by, aren't inherently racist. So the whole Aryan Brotherhood thing is kind of overblown, as most of the woods only join because it's prison and it's racially divided and, like, you basically have to do what you have to do. Um, and he said... So you guys could easily roll with the woods if you wanted to. But with Lisa's Ruski roots, it could pose issues as some of the woods, especially older ones, do feel some way about the former Soviet Union. But Lisa, I feel like you could keep that under wraps. No one would have to know. No, because my legal, I would say Yelizaveta. They would know what's (laughs) up. It's not like I would be able to hide my Russian name. I would rather be with the brothers and others because that sounds more fun. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, anyway, thank you to Johnny R for writing into us. We um, really appreciate you taking the time to educate us on the whole system and how we would be, you know, who we would fit in with on the inside. Now, before I forget, we have two quick plugs before we get started. Uh, we are doing a live Zoom show. It's finally happening. We're going to do it in June. We're still locking down dates and details, but it's going to be amazing. So just keep your eyes peeled on our socials where we will be blasting out the ticket link any moment now. And also a little extra special treat for you this week. Lisa and I are both on Megan Gailey and Naomi Perrigan's Lifetime Movie Podcast called I Love a Lifetime Movie. Our episode is out now. We watch a movie that's based on a true crime. It's very, it's that's messed up vibes, but on a different podcast. So check it out wherever you get your pods. Now we got to get going into today's episode because we have such a phenomenal guest that we like the interview is long and this whole episode is chock full of goodness. So we need to just jump right in. So let's get going. All right. And now we're going to hop on into execution, which is season three, episode 15. This episode is different from. Yeah, I would say I will be transparent up front with our listeners. I don't like these types of episodes. (laughs) One of my least favorites. I hate it so much. Anytime they're just like doing long interviews to dig up something later or evidence. I hate it. She's thinking like like the Brian Dennehy episode, like the episodes where it's just like someone's about to die or get executed. And we have this amount of time to find out the information, like when there's like a countdown, not for Lisa. I like it when they mix it up a little bit. Like someone was asking us recently, like, what do you think about that episode that they just did on the current season where there were three different cases running simultaneously? I kind of think that's cool. I don't want to see that every week, no. but I like it a little bit, you know, like to mix it up. I hate it. Okay. I would I will even in a hotel on USA, I might skip JK. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch it. All right. Well, let me take you through this episode and hopefully my delightful retelling will change your mind. Um, So we open on a convict in a cell being questioned by Dr. George Huang. This is a Huang heavy episode and we love it. A Chiron tells us that it's two hours till execution. So like we said, a sort of countdown. episode. I didn't didn't know the word Chiron. You know, I said that in front of our friend Lauren the other day and she was like, oh, what is that? An industry term? (laughs) Yeah, it's just basically when there's words on the screen. Cool. Yeah. This guy who's in jail is a serial killer named Matthew Brodus, who is being played by an actor named Nick Chinland, who it is, I guess, commonly known screen tested for the role of Elliot Stabler. 
Well, and he's also in one of my top favorite movies of all time, Con Air. It's literally in my notes. Oh, wow. <laughs> literally, it, the next thing I was going to say is what, he's also in Con Air, which I've never seen, but Lisa loves. I can't believe you haven't seen I it. Know, we'll I do know. it on the projector, dude. It <laughs> is. It is so perfect, star studded, <laughs> violent and funny. It's awesome. Ooh, it's funny. OK. Dave Chappelle's in it. What? John Malkovich. We got to look like it's Oh, I just, didn't know any of this. Yeah, it's so good. OK, OK, OK. I'm in. I'm in. Um, so this guy is like super creepy. He's like staring straight ahead, like won't He's make sexy. eye contact with. OK, again, Lisa, a stan of Richard Ramirez, also here to tell you that this creepy fucking guy is hot. He is. I mean, I'm sure the actor, the actor is like a, a handsome man, but he's very creepy here, like just looking straight ahead and like talking. It's very Silence of the Lambs. Like this is this whole interview is very uh, Clarice Starling interviewing Hannibal Lecter, in my opinion. Like Huang asks about his first time and uh, the guy just like is like, what about your first time? And Huang's like, I like I remember it fondly. And then he asks, he's like, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Stabler and Stabler's like fondly. And then they have this whole conversation where he's like, no, like, tell me more. And he's like, I thought it was painful for the girl. I thought I did something wrong. And the guy's like. He's he's basically like intuiting things about Stabler without knowing anything the same way Hannibal Lecter does. Like, that's how smart Hannibal Lecter was that he could like just by the way that you wear your hair. He can tell that you went to this kind of high school and you were this kind of girl or whatever. Like, he's yeah, just like so that's what he's doing. And he literally says something about Stabler's sweaty fumblings. And there's a full monologue that Hannibal Lecter does where he goes, those sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars make you want to go back, get anywhere, get all the way to the FBI. Do you you ever- know, Silence of the Lambs. It's really kind well. of creepy how much I know Silence of the Lambs. It is actually a weird thing about me. Yeah, you know so much about it. But also so, these people would be great fortune tellers if they didn't want to be murderers. I know. Well, I mean, it's it, exactly. It's like a lot of, I think, reading like an eye twitch, reading like facial expressions and stuff like that that helps you get in there. I, I don't really buy this guy as as he's not like as erudite and like seemingly like intelligent as uh, Hannibal Lecter. But, you know, this is what he's doing. He's at, he's acts like he's the smartest guy in the room, which I think a lot of serial killers do do. Um, and he's like, you just said do 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he tells Sabler like, you're exactly like me. Um, and then he tells Huang like, you're not liked. And then Huang goes, in on this guy he's like your first time was terrible you couldn't get it up you're like inept like and he's really going after the guy um and this guy like this is really creepy this guy is referring to his victims as thing like i had this one thing once and it was so sweet like he's calling them it and thing like it's disgusting um and he describes raping and killing one of his victims And Huang can kind of sense this guy's about to explode. And he's like, Elliot, get up from the table. And then this guy just like smashes Huang's head against the wall. Huang like slides down unconscious. And we end on him and Stabler like in a full like Greco-Roman wrestling hold. And that's how we leave the cold open. I don't know how you can't like this episode. I mean, this is pretty fucking. I do like this is very real housewives. I do like when they show us the wild that's about to happen. And And then then they go back (laughs) three weeks prior. Right. So now and I like seeing Huang doing some physical movements like I like some. What is it? Stunts. I like seeing a stunt. Yeah. Yeah. Like Huang in on the action is not something we see a lot of times. So now at the top of act one, we're three days before the execution. Um, And so we've gone back in time and at the precinct, Elliot is approached by Alan and Hannah Cooper. These are parents of a girl named Debbie who was murdered 11 years ago. Her killer was never caught. 
and Elliot's like, of course, I remember the case. This girl was abducted on her way home from school and his partner, Dave Rossetti, worked the case. And the Coopers are like, yeah, we heard he died. We're sorry. And then uh, that's why the Coopers are coming to Elliot because the partner is no longer alive. And they're like, we know who killed our little girl. It's Matthew Brodus, the psycho who's about to be executed in three days. Um, and they basically explain, they're like, we had come to terms with like never knowing who killed our daughter. But then we saw his press conference. I I'm sorry. I didn't realize we were giving serial killers press conferences. Can we YouTube some serial killer press conferences? I mean, like, I just was confused about this. There's a couple wild holes in this episode that I will discuss. One is a serial killer gets a press conference um, where he said that he wants to sell tickets to his execution to raise money for his daughter's education, but he doesn't have any kids. And then the school he mentions is Our Lady of Light, which is the school that their daughter Debbie went to. So he's like trolling them via this press conference. Elliot like goes to Cragen and is like, this matches, this all matches. Cragen's like, why didn't the computer match it? Like, and he's like, it was pre VICAP, which they talk about VICAP a lot on the show. If you haven't, if you don't know, it's violent criminal apprehension program, which is like a national database of crimes and criminals used by the FBI to like, you know, match signature MOs and stuff like that. Um, so this guy, we should mention Brodus is in jail in New Jersey. That's where he's about to be executed. So now there's like a whole NJ New York like thing where, and you know how it is with New York and New Jersey. I feel like there's always a little bit of a rivalry. Sure. But New Jersey knows they're worse. Yes. Like you can't, how be, can they not? <laughs> you're going to be in a rivalry with New York. Like your name better be Tokyo or London, like, <laughs> not New Jersey. Um, right. So, okay, so Cragen says New Jersey's not going to let us near this hump. I thought hump was like a name for a criminal. I extensively Googled the word hump last night. <laughs> you know, I got some interesting thing results because I remember in Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> which I'm going to bring up again, I remember them talking about Buffalo Bill and going, oh, he skins his humps. Like that was a thing they said. But I think that what they're actually saying is like he skins women that he sexually assaults or whatever which is a gross way to refer to it I, but it also hump means like an, an idiot or something so i think that's craigan says the word hump all the time have you heard it before no he does he's like i don't know this hump like so i think he's talking about like an idiot i thought it had more legal if you are like a legal person and there's like a legal um definition behind hump please uh instagram I think us. it's slang i don't know if it's in the law books no no no. <laughs> but you know like the way the way that you say perp or like whatever yeah. you know i think i feel like there is some kind of thing so craigan is like new jersey's not gonna let us near him and he probably wouldn't even talk to us this serial killer and huang's like uh-uh this guy is a different kind of serial killer like most i thought this was interesting and i'm sure that they, there's a lot of research that goes into this they're like most serial killers tend to kill their victims immediately and then take their time with the bodies like i think that's what bundy did that's what a lot of guys did um brodus is different like he kept them around for a long time to torture them like he needs an audience he likes sort of that he likes the reaction so they think wong thinks he actually would be likely to talk and they're all really like skeptical of wong in this episode which yes. is annoying they're just like i don't know about you and it's like he's in the fbi and it's smart yeah you just listen to him this is definitely an arc the beginning of the huang arc where they're trying where he has to like prove himself to the nypd which is crazy because he's obviously very qualified and good at his job and in the fbi yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> what? well you'll well we'll get to it later but there's another comment about the fbi that i was confused about um so a lot of details about Debbie's death match the New Jersey victims, except that he blinded this victim. And Huang said that's symbolic because he was never going to let her live anyway. So she must have known him. 
And Stabler says, yeah, that's what my partner Rossetti always said. Like it's somebody that she knew this guy, but they could never find him. So Huang explains that Brodus is a multi-victim signature killer, which is very rare. He might be able to Wait, get. Do we not see Benson at all? We do later. I was like, she's like, she must have had like shit to do. Yeah. She's in this episode for five minutes. Um, so Huang says, because he's such a rare kind of killer, maybe I can get a field interview. And like, and uh, even though like, even though the FBI can't like force New Jersey to cooperate, he's like, maybe like the brass can grease the wheel and I can get in there with this guy. Um, we also find out that Elliot's former partner, Rossetti, who worked on this case, took his own life over this case. So that's kind of what they, where the stakes are that Elliot's like, I got to clear this for my not only these parents, but also my partner who like, oh, you know, selfish. Yes. No, yeah. I get it. Make, <laughs> make this murder about you. <laughs> um, so Cragen's like, all right, you've got 72 hours. Now, Munch brings the evidence, a bunch of evidence from Debbie's case to the extremely hot CSU tech, Bert Trevor, played by Daniel Sunjata, who also plays super hot Navy guy in Sex and the City and James Holt in Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Two huge roles. We followed his career. I've followed it pretty closely. Um, he's always on the USA Network. He's extremely hot. Yes, he was on a USA but show for like a bunch of seasons. We put him on our on Instagram. We do grids and everyone votes on stuff. And we put him on the hottie list. Not one answer for him. I think just because he's not as well known. People are picking their faves. They're picking their little guys that they know. I was just shocked. He's really hot. Well, he's been in, I think I counted 15 episodes of SVU. He was in seasons like three, four and five. My favorites when he has, there's like a broken bottle and he has to put it back together to try to find a fingerprint that's my favorite moment of his very talented very talented tech <laughs> hot 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 ass man um so basically hey they're like they give this guy the evidence and they're like find us something we got to tie something to brodus or like this case is going to be open forever um now we're at lady of light trying to track down teachers who knew debbie there was only a couple of teachers that gave a shit about debbie i guess and like one is out sick and the other is named vivian Parrish, and she has moved to like like another part of the country and no one knows where she is. The principal gives them the name of a plumbing company because I should mention that Brodus is a plumber's assistant. Apprentice? A plumber's apprentice? I mean, apprentice always makes me feel like it's like a magician's apprentice with like its own little hat and then like cauldron. But I, I always guess... think tattoos first. Oh, okay. See, different, I guess different industries have apprentices so he's a plumber's apprentice and uh there they basically there was a plumbing job of a boiler replacement going on at the school at the time of debbie's murder so they go to this plumbing place it sort of doesn't really go anywhere they go to this guy this plumbing company this guy has meticulous records i'm very horny for how organized he is he's like he's got like a full ledger of every guy that's worked for him all the apprentices and he's like you think i had this psycho working for me i didn't whatever so then as they leave this plumbing place, it's Munch and Stabler. They have this weird exchange where Munch is like, good news for the from the feds, more like bend over. We're taking over your case. And Stabler's like, John, times have changed. They're not the lying bastards they used to be. And I'm like, I need to read a book about the FBI or something. I didn't know the FBI used to be a bunch of lying bastards and then got better. Well, this is also like I think black people have hated the FBI for a long time. Right. I think they've killed some leaders. I think they. um they did some murders. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> they did some stage murders. So like, I know that Sid, like much should definitely not trust them. That's in line with his character. Right. That's true. 
But it's just funny that Stabler's like, they're better. The FBI is cool now. It's- and the cops are just jealous. They want who right. do, who joins the force that doesn't want to be in the right. FBI. Uh, there's an amazing South Park episode a few seasons ago where like the government's try to trap these like white incels, but they trick them into being like, we need you to save this mission. And every guy's like, of course, the government needs my help. And like, so they're, they're able to trap all these guys because they all believe that they <laughs> could be CIA that masters. They're the, that they're like, yeah, the star of their own action thriller. So now we're at a hot dog stand with Huang. No time for lunch. They're doing indirect personality assessments, which they refer to as IPAs, um, with Brodus's cellmates. So Brodus has two former cellmates. One is named Robert Rule. He's in jail for life. Uh, for rape and manslaughter. And then Leroy Russell is on death row for killing a kid in a convenience store robbery. He has converted to Islam. Now he's a model prisoner, but refuses to talk to the feds. So the whole point of these IPAs are background, get his likes, get his dislikes, ways to relate to him. Um, and of course, Stabler thinks he like knows everything. He's like, I've dealt with serial killers. And Huang keeps being like, this guy is different. Like those guys that you've dealt with have hunt- only hunted for short periods of time. This guy was doing it for years undetected, like Dahmer, Lucas and Bundy. I didn't know who Lucas was. So I looked him up. Henry Lee Lucas who is the associate of Otis Toole, who comes up later in the episode, um, who I guess was working for decades before he was caught. He was. He's also famous because he kept lying. He kept confessing to crimes he didn't do. Right. So he, yeah, so which I find silly. It's like faking credits. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So they just fucked with a lot of investigations because they confessed to all these crimes they didn't commit. Right. But this is wild to think about and we'll get into it with the real crime, but it is wild to think about how many serial killers are just out and about. And you don't know how long they're planning each kill. Like it, it is creepy. Yeah. It's creepy to think. No, about. for sure. And that's like the kind of guy this guy is. So he's like, yeah, it takes years for killers like this to relax their guard. And of course they get more pliable, the closer you get to their execution date. But you also have to remember that like this is a game and Brodus is holding all the cards is basically what Huang tells him. So now we're talking to Robert Rule, one of the first ex-cellmates. And this is Turtle from Sex in the City. This is the guy that was the turtle that Samantha gave a makeover to. Um, who loved mushrooms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who liked to eat mushrooms. He's like, these are bad- porcachinis. Yeah. I don't know if that's. <laughs> porcinis. Porcinis, yeah. <laughs> and he had bad breath and like she turned him around. Um, she, yeah, she bought him helmet Lang. Yeah. So he wants a deal and Huang's like, no deal. I'm not going to like make you a deal. And st- so they walk out of the interview. Stabler's pissed. And Huang's like, rule doesn't have shit. Like uh, Brodus wouldn't have trusted a guy like this. He would have thought this guy was beneath him. He never would have opened up to him. And Stabler's like, you don't get up from the table till you've seen everybody's hand. And then Huang's like, just FYI, the FBI is running these interviews and I'm not offering any deals. And he kind of like puts Stabler in his place, which I like to see. You love to see it. Um... So now um, we're in Cabot's office and Stabler is like, come on, help me out. Let's do something like file a temporary stay. And she's like, we need evidence to link Brodus to this victim. I can't just like stop an execution. New Jersey's not going to let it happen. She's like, let me go to New Jersey and ask an old friend for a favor. So we're now in New Jersey and we meet executive ADA Alan Messinger, Messenger, Messinger, played by Ty Burrell, a.k.a. Phil Dunphy from Modern Family in a very different role. Um, he's like shutting her down. He's like, I'm in the home stretch of this execution. I can't afford any fuck ups. So you're not like and she's trying to say, I'm not trying to sabotage your execution. And he goes, you thought ancient history would get you a seat at the table. And I'm like, 
we can assume these two have fucked, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's like, you're good, Alex, not spectacular. And I'm like, check yourself. Alex Cabot is spectacular, right? In my mind. Yeah. She's also in New York. Yeah. So she's better than you already. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, you watch your goddamn mouth feel dumpy. Yeah, when people um, are like, people in New York think they're better than everyone. I go, yeah. <laughs> Have you been there? Of course they are. Um, he he also references Henry Lee Lucas and Bundy and was like, these guys will say anything to stay their executions. And he's like, no one gets access, period. So he's like shutting Cabot down. Back at the lab, there was not enough blood. The fibers are consistent with a plumber uniform. The tape is consistent with the other victims nothing is a smoking gun they could maybe compare the fibers to new jersey but those are going to be hard to get so basically the lab has given us like a, a smidge of hope but not not anything huge now um in cabot's office stabler is asking cabot he's basically trying to go around huang to offer a deal to rule the guy who is in jail and wanted the deal and she's like i'm not doing that i'm like i can't give a deal to this guy who's got life basically and elliot is pushing it really hard he's just like this guy has 12 victims he kept them all alive blah 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 and and he basically is playing to cabot's emotional side he's like come on like we really need this for these people like how many times have you had a case where you'd have to tell the victims you have no information for them this is your chance to like redo it basically um okay so now it's two days before the execution cabot has come through and elliot has figured out a way to talk to rule without huang there stabler is offering a change of venue that he can move to different prison to the danbury federal prison which you assume is nicer than rikers i guess um Rule gives Elliot this sob story about his daughter. He's like, I just want you to call her and find out how she's doing. I'm not going to talk unless you call my daughter. Elliot uses his cell phone, calls this number that this criminal has given him and says, hi, I'm calling on behalf of Robert Rule when the woman picks up the phone. And then immediately Robert Rule starts screaming, I miss you so much. And then she hangs up the phone. So not a great phone call. Um, and, and obviously he did his part and Elliot got nothing from Robert Rule. He's like, he had nothing, only stuff he'd like read in the newspapers. So it was like, Kwong was right, dude. Now back at Our Lady of Light, the school, uh, Munch meets with one of Debbie's old teachers, Andrea Mason, who knew Debbie. She has like no information and is like too cheerful talking about this. She's like, I think it's great. You guys are trying to find her killer. I'm like, you don't remember a lot of information about a girl who was horrifically, brutally murdered 10 years ago. Like, she's like, a lot of kids come in and out of this school. I'm like, but this one is pretty special. Like, it's just like she's, it's a weird performance. I'll just say that. Um, and then Elliot is basically uh, talking to Huang and he's like, yeah, rule gave us nothing. And Huang's like, one of these days you're going to realize I know what I'm doing. Um, and then Brooklyn SVU shows up looking for Stabler. Turns out that that number that Stabler had called was one of rules rape victims. And they're pissed that he has gone and like traumatized this woman. So what I want to know is like, did the daughter exist? Like, who's the daughter? He's a liar. He's a criminal. And yeah. Elliot's a fucking idiot. I like, know. what the fuck, bro? You're I just know. you go against everyone. You're just so selfish. And now you've re-traumatized a victim. <laughs> yeah. So he gets in trouble for that. He has to apologize. Cragen is like lecturing him for being a dumbass. And he's like, I already called and apologized. And Cragen's like, I'll smooth things over, which seems like Cragen's whole life is smoothing over things that Elliot Stabler has done incorrectly. Um, at the precinct, we finally see Benson and Finn. 
Benson has her short um, thought she was going to get fired for it haircut. And they're all shitting on Finn for not getting his like weapon recertified. And they're like, your weapon went off too soon or whatever. And it's like, there's a pill for that. It's like a fun little Viagra moment um, from 2002 when this episode aired. (laughs) Now, Stabler is like having a hard time figuring out how to get in with Leroy Russell, the other cellmate, because he is like converted to Islam and like won't won't talk to the feds um and finn knows of course a ton about islam and it's like say he's got a blood debt like in the quran it says he took a life so he owes a debt for spilling blood so that's kind of basically what the angle that stabler goes after is he goes to appeal to the father of the murdered kid and says can you like it's so sad he goes to his house and the guy has like a shrine to his son who who was killed again stabler being an idiot here going this will uh he's like i don't mean to open up your wounds and the dad's like yeah when your kid gets murdered your wounds don't just heal you fucking numb nut right (laughs) i'm anti-stabler i'm 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 loving this episode though (laughs) your retelling is good (laughs) um he says to the father of this this kid who was killed by leroy russell he says i know you spoke out at his sentencing opposing the death penalty so i feel like you could find it in your heart to speak to him to try to help us get closure for another family and the guy Seems a little bit pissed, but eventually he does do it. Um, He shows the dad a picture of Debbie and that kind of, you know, softens him up. So now they're at Danamora, another big prison escape from Danamora was like the big movie that there is actually an SVU based on where that woman helped two guys get escape from that prison. Uh, It's death row at Danamora and Leroy's brought in and the dad tells him like, he's like, I owe you a debt. The the killer says to him and he's like, you can never repay it. So just talk to these cops. Um, The killer is a big Oz actor. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, okay um you know i've got a blind spot for oz but i'm here to pick it up yeah pick up all the pieces (laughs) so basically he's like we played a muslim there too so i guess he has a real muslim vibe (laughs) yeah okay yeah another muslim in me he's really typecast yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so he shared a cell with brodus for three years he goes he's a killer he would ask me questions like how i got on death row how who i killed and my answers pissed him off because i think he couldn't like it wasn't like a like it wasn't like a sexy enough murder for him. He wasn't getting like a boner over the details. Now, um, Leroy explains that Brodus took joy in killing and stalking, gutting, doing things to the body, thought he was smarter than everyone else, even when he fucked up. Like he said, he killed a blind girl close to home. So this is like ding, ding. This is like the little the little connection that we need. Um, and then there's like a sad moment where the dad's like, what were my son's final moments like? And he was like, sir, you don't need the image of your boy dying with my voice in your head telling you how. And that's it. So that's kind of a sad little side story. Um, so now Elliot's talking to Cabot and Cabot's like, I mean, that's great. But like, this is too, this is hearsay from a guy on death row. Here's the part of this that makes absolutely no fucking sense to me in this. Munch has found Vivian Parrish, that other teacher who was close with Debbie. Turns out. She was she dated Brodus for six months and regularly picked her up from that school and a couple of times gave Debbie a ride home. How in the fucking world would the cops not have found that in the first round of investigations? It's New Jersey. I mean, okay, that's just (laughs) so nuts to me. Like she's close to two teachers. You talk to those teachers. The teacher doesn't go. Actually, I'm dating a serial killer or like the teacher doesn't give any information. Wait, But the teacher doesn't know that she's dating a serial killer yet. Well, she eventually 
this is to me also a place where I would have loved to have met Vivian Parrish in this episode. They only talk about her like as a entity. She's, Maybe if Zoom was around. Yeah, we could have Zoomed her in. We could have FaceTimed with Vivian because she had moved to New Mexico. And like, I just feel like you would have checked all you would have checked all the bases. Like the parents would have been like, oh yeah, a couple times her teacher Vivian Parrish brought her home. Hey, Miss Parrish, like whoever brought you home. Who, I don't know. I'm not a fucking cop, but I just feel like this would have, yeah. that's a huge hole. So then Debbie's parents are at the precinct and they're like, what's our next move? And Cabot's kind of like, I can't prove this in court, but we are reasonably sure of his guilt and he's going to be executed. And that's when the mother brings up Otis Tool, who is the man who is believed to have killed Adam Walsh, the six-year-old son of John Walsh, who was the host of America's Most Wanted. Um, this killer Otis tool, allegedly everyone thought he killed Adam Walsh. We'll get into that later in the episode. And he died of AIDS on death row before it was proven. So they're basically saying like his hope died the day that Otis tool died. And we don't want our hope to die like the way that that happened to him. So that again, tugs on Cabot's heartstrings and reaches her. So she goes to meet with Brodus's lead counsel and who looks like the date rapiest guy I've ever seen. Sorry if you're a listener, sir, but you have a very, very scary face. He um, puts his feet up on the table while he's talking to her. I don't like his attitude. And he's like, oh yeah, let's put Brodus on trial. Let's get, we'll gain him six to 12 more months, maybe 18 if I drown you in paperwork. So they're basically colluding to get this stay of, of execution to happen just so he can live a little bit longer and she can get some closure for this family. Now we are one day before execution. We're in this New Jersey court. Cabot is facing off against Phil Dunphy, a.k.a. Messinger. He's saying the evidence is circumstantial. She's saying we don't even want to try him. We just want the opportunity to discover the truth. If he dies, the truth dies with him. So then afterwards, they're at a bar. Dunphy slides into the booth with uh, Alex and is basically like, "Okay, we'll let you talk to him. Just promise me that you're not going to prosecute him even if he confesses to you, like, we just want this execution to go off, like, and then you'll get the closure for your family. And we, you know, whatever. So now it's act four of this episode. We're four hours till execution. Elliot and Huang are like prepping. They're at the jail. They're about to meet Brodus. Huang is basically like, I'll be bad cop. Elliot's going to be kind of like the good cop. He's like, you be his friend when I stress him out, um, is what Huang says. It might work. They might run out of time. So Brodus comes in, Stabler shakes his hand, Huang doesn't, sets it up right away. I'm not here to make friends. That's Huang. Okay, he's on America's Next Top Model and he is not here to make friends. Um, and they call him Matthew Brodus or something and he's like, you can call me Matt. He's like extremely arrogant right off the top. Um, he's like grinning at the idea that he doesn't have kids. You know, like he's like, I mean, like anyone would admit it. Like it, he's just being really gross. And then they are, they say like, why didn't you kill your girlfriend, Vivian Parrish? He's not giving them a lot. Huang brings up his insomnia. And then suddenly he's like, what's in that? What's that? What are you holding? And Huang's got a folder and he's like, oh, it's just uh, just another case I'm working on. I thought maybe I could get your help, which serial killers love that. I feel like like Ted Bundy, they went to Ted Bundy about the Green River Killer. Like they go to these serial killers to try to be like, you guys are a special breed. Tell us about how you do your work so we can find this other guy, you know? So he basically wants to ask Brodus's opinion about this killer's M.O. And they discuss the three D's of sadism, dread, dependency and degradation. So Brodus obviously is like hungry to see this folder. He opens it up. He's pissed. There's no crime scene photos. Right. He's like, what is this? And then he just sees the one photo of Debbie, which honestly looks like it was taken in 1952. She's <laughs> like in a, it's like an airbrushed sailor dress photo. And I think it's only supposed to be like early 90s. But 
Um, he crumples up the picture. He pushes the folder away. Um, and he's like, you're kind of like this guy. Like you both chose big girls, stuff like that. And then they're describing the crime and Brodus is like getting turned on and it's really disgusting. And then he describes like cutting open a victim as being born again. And Huang's like, it's not about religion. The womb is like the one place where a mother can never abandon you. Now we get into his mom issues. Elliot brings up Brodus's mom is like, she hated you. She abandoned you multiple times. And Brodus is like, she loved me. Like he, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't like being psychoanalyzed. He's very much on Stabler's side that shrinks are, are losers. Um, and then Elliot is like, how many times were we, were you with Debbie postmortem? And Brodus is like, that's obscene. It always like is so interesting to me what these disgusting like monsters think is too far. Yeah. Like, I'll do all this horrible shit. I'll torture someone for days, but like be with the body once they're dead. Ew. It's like, I don't know. So he says he only went back to the victims to check that they were still there. And Stabler was like, well, this guy went back to the victim to be with them and gives Brodus a wink. Sorry, it's kind of a hot wink from Stabler. I kind of wanted someone to make it into a gif. Please do that if you know how to do that. So they say to Brodus, Vivian Parrish said you had a hard time getting it up. And he's like, I should have killed her before she went out west. Debbie just wanted someone to tell her ugly ass that she was pretty, thought she was in a Harlequin romance. So he says Debbie, even though he means Vivian, slip of the tongue. And he goes, that's one of my other victims. And they're like, no, none of your other victims are named Debbie or Deborah or their middle names. Stabler knows all their names. So um, he puts his head down on the table and is like, what time is it? And that's where we started the episode. So now we've caught up to where we started the episode. Um, Messinger and Cabot are at the jail, like just chatting when alarms go off and a lockdown is initiated. And that's kind of when we know that this man has attacked Huang and Stabler. They, they keep, they push Cabot and Messinger back and they keep going, go, go, go. But they're making them walk backwards to turn them around, like let them walk forward. They should turn themselves around. <laughs> they're just like shuffling backwards. It was very funny to me. Um, also, the attack. I don't know if you're going to say this, but he, you know, because then you think that Huang and Stabler got him. But this was his plan all along because he says he goes, what time is it? Because he knows that's when the guards switch shifts. Right. So it's kind of like they thought that they were winning this thing, but all along he was just waiting yeah. till five o'clock to exactly. fucking go nuts. Which is very Hannibal Lecter. Like Hannibal yeah. Lecter knew when they were switching shifts and like gets one of the guards and it's like a whole thing, you know? So they lock Messinger and Cabot in a cell, like it's basically like the audience area for watching the execution. And all these families are like, when is the show starting? It's really <laughs> awkward. Um, and then we cut to the scene where Brodus is bashing Huang's head against the wall and he's got Stabler in a chokehold and he goes, Debbie didn't fight back. So there's the confession that we've wanted this whole time. Then the guards pull them apart and the guards start beating the shit out of Brodus and Elliot's like, stop, stop. That's what he wants. And so then the way the episode ends, Huang is going to be all right. Brodus is on a ventilator and the state is not allowed to execute an unhealthy man. So they just have to like let the families of the victims know that like this is going to go on until he either recovers or he's just in, he could be in a coma forever. Like, and knows? I felt I felt like Ty Burrell had a really good acting moment. I was like full on with him. When Stabler's like, I'll tell them. And he goes, they don't give a shit. Yeah. He's like, they don't care, would you? And I'm like, I actually kind of would. I'm I'm anti-death penalty, so I guess like, but I would I would be like, it's fine to stay the execution for a little bit if it helps another family get closure. I don't think, I don't know how, like, 
you're just assuming people are very selfish, I feel like. So Elliot leaves the prison and there's all these protesters outside that are probably pro and against execution. And then he sees the Coopers and the show fades to black, right? As he's about to tell them that, you know, they figured out who killed their daughter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's the episode. And um, it was a it was a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot of moving around in this a lot of different. We're going cross state lines. We're in a New Jersey. I'm just wondering for a killer, why wouldn't he have just confessed to this crime? You're already getting the death penalty. Like, what was the game he was playing? Yeah, it is weird. I don't know. Oh, I think maybe because it might be because he messed with the body after it was dead or like some of that, like there was some shame with that. He said like too close to home. Like, I guess he did most of his other killings in New Jersey. I don't know. It's a great question. There's another episode like this in the show where they're just trying to get a guy to say he did these crimes. And he's like, Remember when he's sniffing the baseball hat? Yes. And he's like, I know every kid I did and I didn't do this one. And it's like, but, you know, I don't I need to remember that episode. I've I've recently just watched it. Did he actually kill the kid that they think he did? I don't even remember. That's why we watch these over (laughs) and over again. That's the point. Like, I've watched all of them. And you're asking me a question of one I watched within the next last two weeks. And I'm like, (laughs) no clue. But I'll watch him sniff those hats again and be surprised. (laughs) All right. Well, let's um, take a quick break. And then I can't wait for you to take us into the reality of all of it. So this crime, there, there's a couple different ones. I'll touch on one and then get into details of another. And heads up, there are some super disgusting, twisted, fucked up facts. And I will be saying them. So I don't know, get a puke bucket. But <laughs> I'm not censoring this. Um, but the first crime, and Kara touched on it in the episode, and t- Otis Tool was mentioned in the SVU episode. And basically... He's a convicted serial killer and he confessed to the murder of Adam Walsh, but he was never convicted of it and there was never enough evidence to convict him. And so the confession was then also recanted. And so there's a lot of confusing shit. And uh, John Walsh, who is the host of America's Most Wanted, he never got closure. And that's kind of been his mission is to be an advocate for victims of violent crimes because of the murder of his son. So Otis is a drifter serial killer convicted of six counts of murder and what happened with adam was july of 1981 a boy and a mother entered sears at one entrance Mm. and the mom went to go look at lamps and the boy went to go play video games in a console uh promotional area and the other boys that were playing were acting a fool so the security guard kicked all the boys out but at another exit And, you know, baby brains can't really, like, comprehend all that. Like, I have a memory as a kid turning one wrong way. And, like, clearly this wasn't the path to my home, but my little brain just couldn't handle switching back around. And so um, at 155, they called the cops because they couldn't find the boy at all. And they found his head in a drainage canal and the rest of his body was never discovered. The only thing that confused me was uh, they said that he died of asphyxiation. But how do you figure that out with just a decapitated head? Maybe just the eye capillaries or something? I wonder, yeah, I wonder. 
So that's pretty gruesome and awful. And it sucks that they don't have closure. And Tool died in prison from psoriasis at age 49. Well, it was cirrhosis. Psoriasis is a skin condition that I actually have. Cirrhosis is um, cirrhos- a disease of the liver. Um, but what's crazy is in this episode, uh, Stabler goes, he died of AIDS in prison. And, I'm, and I looked it up and it, it just nowhere that you look, it says AIDS. And then if you look up Otis Tool AIDS, it says a couple of random places say he died of cirrhosis and AIDS. And it's just interesting that that's what SVU went with. They were like, he died of AIDS. It's like, well, most places say he died of cirrhosis. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty wild. It's a, it's a, it's crazy. I, I honestly feel like he did not kill him. It seems like he was confessing to a famous crime because he was a little bit, he was, I think he had like a very low IQ. I think he had a traumatic life. Um, but also one of the reasons why there was no evidence is because the cops lost his car. They had his car and I guess it was like impounded and then it was fully lost and like would have had blood in it would have had like all this stuff. Yeah, the cops fucked up this investigation a few different times. It was uh, pretty annoying. But also, this is a huge crime, just to mention really quickly. This is a huge crime that sparked the st- the stranger danger whole thing that we grew up with. Like, I grew up, like, watching videos in school about stranger danger and stuff. And I've been listening to some podcasts lately that are like, this is like a hysteria of stranger danger. Like, the number of stranger danger crimes are extremely, extremely low and rare. Well, we're saying that, but we talk about them all the time. Of it course, because they're the rare. ones because they're the ones they're going to talk about on TV and half these are made up on SVU. But if you look at the numbers, it's not the kids are not getting snatched left and right. It, usually it's it's pretty rare. Yeah. But uh, I mean, for in the SVU universe, it's happening on a daily basis. And another way the cops kind of fucked up is they wanted him to do it because it, it would close crimes. it. Yes. So. It was um, bad, but it is amazing what Adam Walsh has been able to do and like what he's done for victims mm-hmm. rights. And it's just like really sad. And it reminds me of the dad in the episode, like your wounds don't heal. If you lose yeah. a child, you know, you're just always going to be a different person. Um, the crime I wanted to more focus on was Ed Kemper and he's pretty famous. A lot of movies, a lot of books and the FBI did profile him. He has multiple pretty famous interviews you can watch on YouTube in 81, 84, and like 91. And he was portrayed in the show Mindhunter, which I really liked. I only watched season one, but I liked it a lot. Season one's better than season two, and he's not in season two. So yeah, he did an incredible job, and I liked all the actors. And I felt the woman character in that show was so good. She was, and she had horrible makeup. She was orange the whole time. Go back and watch it. She looks like a Simpsons character. Okay, I did not notice that. Um, The makeup team did her dirty, but go on. So Ed Kemper is alive today. Um, He was born in 1948, and he is a Sagittarius. So if anyone was wanting to... But what's his rising sign? (laughs) And the reason the FBI and everyone wanted to talk to him is because he was smart as hell. Mm -hmm. His IQ was super high, and so... He was really like self what is it, introspective. Like he was able to talk about the crimes in a really detailed, cool way that I guess a lot of other killers didn't. And I think that he could look at what other criminals were doing and he could like synthesize information and like analyze what motives and stuff like that. The thing is, like he is so interesting and smart and whatever. And then you're like, and then you research and you're like, you're an incel. You're just an incel who wanted to fuck like that. That at the end of the day, you're blaming your mom. I don't know. It, but the mom does seem like she sucks. But then I don't fully believe it. because So he blames a lot of his rage and hatefulness and 
wild problems on how his mom belittled him, treated him like trash, just hated him so much. And I guess his sister tried to kill him twice. What? Yeah, like threw him in a deep end of a pool and then like tried to do something else fucked up to him. And uh, when I was reading a little bit about Otis Tool, his mother used to dress him up in dresses and call him Susan. So moms are doing some fucked up shit out there. So, but the thing with the mom was she was nervous for her daughter's safety. So she locked him in a basement and wouldn't let him out. Oh, so that he wouldn't hurt the daughter. Yes. So then that he blames that for fucking him up. But also he had already killed multiple cats. He buried one of the family cats alive. Then once it was dead, took it out, decapitated it, put it on a spike. He killed another one of the cats, like slaughtered it. He also, as a kid, loved to play electric chair and gas chamber and would like make his sisters blindfold him. And then he would pretend to dine on an electric chair. So I'm like, I understand if the mom wanted to keep him away from her daughters. Yeah. You're like ripping heads off Barbies, but then also did being trapped in a basement. Is this like a, yeah, did a that exacerbate things a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Like a wicked situation. <laughs> Uh, what is it? Is wicked? Are you born wicked or is wickedness thrust upon you? Mm -hmm. But he blames her for all of his problems. So she got sick of dealing with him and sent him to live with his paternal grandparents um, in North Folk, California. And then his parents did split up and that caused some issues because he liked his dad. Um, but it didn't work out living with him either. I mean, this kid was not easy. Uh, so the mother sent him to live with his paternal grandparents uh, when he was a teenager. And at age 15, he got into a fight with his grandma in the kitchen and just shot her dead in the kitchen. Oh, he shot her. He shot her. And then posthumously, post posthumously, post posthumously. Yeah, that sounds crazy. But after the death, there's all these post dead uh, stab wounds. So he was pissed at her. So he like shot her, stabbed her a bunch once she was dead. And then when the grandpa came home, he went outside and shot the grandpa outside. And when he talks about it, he goes, I didn't want him to have to see his wife dead. Weird. So it's like nice in a way. Yeah. But not. But he's having empathetic feelings. That's what's interesting. Wow. He could also be lying. Like he could just have wanted to kill him. But he was like, there's no reason for him to have seen that. So I just killed him. So it is very uh, strange. I, it's tough to understand it all. So he was sent to Atascadero State Hospital, which was a max security for mentally ill convicts. Um, they said that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, but some of the doctors don't believe that at all because he didn't have voices and there weren't interruptions mm-hmm. and he wasn't. I don't, I don't know what was going on in this hospital because basically he was such a model person and he was so smart that he ended up helping the doctors do psych evals on other patients and he was like questioning other patients and so through all of the research he learned how to trick the psychologists and psychiatrists into thinking he was rehabilitated because they gave him all of this knowledge and then he also learned tips from the the other criminals on how to be a better criminal so instead of like he just basically learned how to be a super yeah they insta- yeah they supercharged him like instead of like fixing him they just kind of gave him like 
better powers. Yeah, like one of the people, like one of the lessons he said he learned was he was told never leave a victim alive because that's a witness. Always kill anyone that you rape. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll put that in my feather cap or whatever. Like, I'll put it. <laughs> I'll remember that. And he was a really hard worker. And so he just did all this extra work there. And I guess sociopaths are hard workers. So it wasn't that surprising. But uh, yeah, he got let out. So at age 21, after killing his grandparents, he got out six wow. years later. And not only that, Wait, he was only 15 when he killed his grandparents. Yeah. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. So he got out at 21. And in November 29th, 1972, his younger record was expunged. So now he's out there like a perfectly yes. like non-criminal person. Yes. <gasps> and then on his outside world time. He really wanted to be a cop, but he couldn't because he was too big. So he was like six, nine and 300 pounds. And I guess Whoa. that's too big to be a police officer. But he just hung out at cop bars and he became friends with all the cops to the point where cops were giving him handcuffs. One of the cops gave him a gun like cops gave him a fake like toy badge or some sort of badge. But like so he now was able to befriend psychologists and doctors and cops. Yeah. And in one of the interviews, this is another thing where it's like he is so self-aware where um, they he was asked, like, so how did the cops feel about you? And he goes, I was a friendly nuisance. I annoyed them. Mm -hmm. So, like, he knows he's annoying to them. Yeah. But he doesn't care enough because now he's friends with all these cops, because even um, at one point, like I will get to it, but like the cops had to search his place and they had all this evidence everywhere and they didn't. They were like, Big Ed, nah, and like totally didn't fully investigate. Wow. And even when he was caught or like when he turned himself in, all the officers in, in Santa Cruz were like, no way. Can you believe it? And then like, obviously, all the evidence worked out. But so, yeah, he was like a smart guy that was able to do anything. And then all the doctors, when he was released, were like, do he should not live with his mother. Like, please don't. That shouldn't happen. But he was released to his mother uh, and he hates her. She abused him, whatever. So he starts working at the Department of Transportation in 1971. And then during this time, he gets hit by a car and his arm was super fucked up. So he won a $15,000 settlement and he decided to follow his passions instead of work. And his passions were picking up hitchhikers. And what is an interesting fact is he picked up 150 hitchhikers before killing anybody. Wow. And yeah, he would just pick them up and what? And drive them, to drive them places. To yeah. Well, he honestly, somebody so smart and calculated like that, he was probably like learning how, how do you lure someone into your car? How do you make someone feel safe? How do you like keep the conversation going so that nobody can run? And like, how far do you have to drive before you're like in a rural area where they can't go anywhere? I don't know. Maybe do I sound like a serial killer? I'm like, no, but this is what's scary is like, you don't, you just don't like all of this was practiced to murder. Like you don't even know how right. many killers are out there practicing. It's like they say, get 10,000 hours. Yes. He was getting 10,000 hours. He was. And he focused um, on college students in Santa Cruz because his mom worked there as an administrative assistant. Mm. And so there was also, a, there was like a few killers active in that area during the time he was dubbed the co-ed killer but there were a couple other killers in that area 
California so, has had so many fucking serial yes. killers. It's, it's like insane. And so, and hitchhiking was dangerous. And so then what they said was, don't hitchhike, you know, all the PSA, don't hitchhike, don't hitchhike, unless someone has a college parking sticker, like a college authorization sticker, because so that you know they work at the college. He had one of those stickers <gasps> wow. from his mom. Oh, wow, wow. So they, like, all the messaging to all these students was, you can trust someone with the school sticker, and it actually gave him, like, an easier way to pick up victims. Damn. So that is pretty wild. But yeah. And then I don't know if he stuck to the students because because his mom worked there. That's what he said. And he said he picked his mom's favorite students or whatnot. But I think it had to do with women education. He just. Yeah, it is wild. So in May of 1972, he picks up two Fresno State students, Marianne Pache and Anita Lucasa. And they never made it to their next destination. A female head was discovered in the woods in Santa Cruz, and it was identified as Pache. But Luqueza remains have never been found. And the head was found in August of 1972. So it took a few months to find this head. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was really into decapitating. He said he loved decapitating because it's a trophy and it is everything. Like you can't, your body doesn't work without the head. Right, it's the control center. Yeah, yeah. and he liked that it had like a mouth and mm. ears, eyes. Like he just said it had everything. Okay. Um, so that's why he liked um, having heads. But he would keep them or like put keep them in the woods so he could get like that. That's where they would, he would keep so um he he orally raped them after he decapitated okay them. and he would also like fuck around with the bodies so he would like kill people drag the bodies back to his room where he lived with his mom hide them in the closet and when she went to work would like fuck around with them okay so he was maybe this is where svu got some of their yeah. inspiration but he was definitely there's like a, actually a specific word for oral rape there's like a, a word <sighs> Um, that Wikipedia gave me, but I wasn't about to learn it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out with words. Hannah, did you look it up? What is it? I have it. It is spelled I-R-R-U-M-A-T-I-O, Irumatio. Okay. Not a word we need to keep. No, no. So, um, <laughs> that doesn't need to take up space in anyone's brain. No. Um, and he, a cop actually pulled him over per, for a broken taillight while the two bodies were in his car and didn't detect a thing. Oh my God. That happens so much. It's like, ugh. um, and I'm sure he got off on that. Um, yeah. So after he killed them, like I said, he brought the back to the apartment, removed heads and hands, engaged in sexual activity with their corpses. So that's pretty wild Tough stuff. So in September 1972, so, uh, you know, not even a month after the head was found, he picked up a 15 year old Aiko Koo. This is a thing I hate debating, like what victims did or didn't do, because it's like they shouldn't be dead. But like some people say she missed the bus so, to her dance class and decided to hitchhike. And then some places I read were just like she decided to hitchhike because she didn't want to wait for the bus. Mm -hmm. And it sucks that those things matter. matter for our judgment. Yeah. It's like she should be alive. She's a child. Right. So I don't like talking about those distinctions. But after killing Aiko and putting her in the trunk, he went to a bar and had dr drinks. And in the parking lot of the bar afterwards, opened the trunk to admire the body, like in full open um, and then drove home. So, so casual. This isn't even like yeah. big event. Like he has a dead body and that's confidence. I don't know if it's his smartness. I don't know what it is, but like 
Yeah, just chill having drinks while there's a dead body in his trunk. It's so fucked up. So January 73, he picked up Cindy Shaw and he shot and killed her. Again, brought him into the room when the mom was at home, dismembered the body. He also threw body parts in the ocean. And so body parts were constantly being washed up. So that's another thing in this town. Like once in a while, like a body part would just wash up. Oh my God. Yeah. I was just going to say, this is just interesting too, that he's shooting them. Like so many other of these killers, like stab them or like do horrible, like, like. But he does. The thing is like, he does, like he explains later, he stabbed uh, and strangled Pesce. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you, cause he shot his grandparents and then he shot this one woman. So I was like, oh, it's interesting that he's shooting them. So it's like, he's getting the death over with quickly so that he could just like mess with the body. Yeah. He definitely has way more MOs than the night stalker, but it is a way of like, it's a little random in terms of stabbing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Shooting. Yeah. And he had multiple guns. So he had like a 22 and a 44. Like he had a few, you could say guns. any numbers. <laughs> I don't know anything about guns. He's got a 1250. Uh, well, cause I just remember that because when the cops did eventually like um show up to investigate some stuff he was able to ask leading questions to figure out what kind of gun they were looking for to know where his guns were to like help lead them where he didn't want them to go but they did find a big gun in his closet and but next to it was a box of trophies of like body parts and purses ids and shit not body parts i would smell but like it had purses and ids and like different trophies they didn't even open the box it's just tough. And this, uh, this kind of reminds me of Stabler where it's like, you you know, you can't keep your personal in it. Mm-hmm. Like Stabler wanted to solve it, the crime so bad. And here they didn't want their friend who's obsessed with them. I mean, he was a cop groupie. Yeah. Um, and, and that's they couldn't just see embarrassing. It. Yeah. Like it, you know, when people are complimenting you and you just can't even, I mean, it's humiliating. Um, so he buried, um, Cindy's head in her mother's backyard. So body parts in the ocean. I mean, it's like he's just a he's it's just gross. It's like gross and vile and really sad. Um, February 5th. So he's not even taking that much time between the kills. He used, like I mentioned, a campus parking sticker that his mother gave him to facilitate a double murder. He offered to drive two students, Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. And he shot them, drove past campus security gates with the dead women in his car. I know it's really wild. Um, He then decapitated them, removed bullets and spread the remains all over town. And in March, some of their remains were discovered by hikers in this in San Mateo County. So, you know, I guess if you want to find a body, go hiking. (laughs) um i would say that i mean anytime i drive by woods especially like pennsylvania is so woody like any road trip with woods i'm like i want to know how many dead bodies are in that woods oh i once drove through the park in dc when chandra levy was missing that she was eventually found in i drove through it and we were like isn't it crazy that she's like missing like where do you think she is and then like she was found like a mile away in this park yeah and like yeah a very wooded park but yeah like so what you're saying like yeah yeah when you i totally do that where i see woods and i'm like i wonder how many dead bodies are in there it's scary um so like at the same time of his murders there are two other serial killers so john lindley frazier and herbert mullins are also killing in santa cruz so it was dubbed the murder capital of the world lol um and then his crime specifically i said this but the co-ed killer April 1973, on Good Friday, he went to his mother's home and attacked her after she fell asleep. 
And in the, a lot of the interviews I was watching and like he would cry and be like, I knew I was going to kill her two weeks before I did. Like, or yeah, because if she had already fallen asleep, it wasn't like they had a fight that precipitated it. Right. It was like he went over there. There to was do a it. fight, but I think they always fought. I don't yeah. think they had a good relationship. Right. Like, I just think she hated him and was an alcoholic and he had a lot of mommy issues. Jeez. But I, you know, obviously I don't like when anyone blames a woman for anything yeah. of their own actions. She still didn't deserve to be killed, but she maybe wasn't a great mother. But yeah, he would cry. He'd be like, oh, I saw this person and I knew I would have to kill them. And then basically he picked up two hitchhikers. This is like through like his voice. So we also don't know if he's a fucking liar too. Mm -hmm. I don't get that vibe, but like I'm not a pro. And I guess these profilers, the FBI didn't. I mean, they've used his stuff. But... He said like he picked up two girls and drove around and took them to their destination. And he was like, I need to kill my mom because all of my killings are just getting back at my mom. And I don't want more young people like these women to die. Like these women shouldn't wow. be dead. They can be alive. If I just kill my mother, that will end it all. Yeah. It's like, what is the phrase cutting the head off of the dragon or something? There's like a like, I'll cut the head off the snake or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so he um, attacked her after she fell asleep. He hit her head in the hammer. Okay, so this is like one of the gross, my gross favorite parts of this. So there's a hammer. He cuts her throat. He decapitated her. He cut off her hands. But then he removed her larynx and put it down the garbage disposal. Her vocal cords, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they talk about that in Mindhunter. And I think he, he says why, right? Like, I think it's because he just wanted, like, it's symbolic. Yeah, he yeah. wanted her to shut up. Yeah. And I watched a video on YouTube where it was like, they would go back and forth from Mindhunter to the real tapes. Wow. And just show. And it some of it was word for word. Like, they did a great job. And I watched one news clip with the actor on local LA News. And, the, like, the news reporter was going to, like, suck his dick on, on set. <laughs> She was like, you're amazing. I could talk to you for hours. Your performance. Like she was just all over this guy. He was good, but I don't he know was, about that. He was very good. Uh, I saw him at a bar and I could not focus. I was like so scared oh because God. he was there. Because well, I feel like I read that because they had to find a man that was so huge like him and he looks like him. And it, but the guy was like only sort of like a newer actor and he was also a special ed teacher, right? Like that's what I was reading about him. You have to be empathetic to your character or you can't play them. Like, yeah, if even if they're it. a bad person. So I am sure for a new actor, like that's so impressive to be able to pull off a role like this. So, but after he um, killed his mother, he and hid his mom's body parts, he called his mom's friend Sally Hallett and invited her over to the house for like dinner and hangout and then strangled her and killed her and hid her body in the closet. And it was to have a like a cover story to say the mom and friend went on vacation. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this guy is really smart. It's fucked up. We like, I guess if we're going to have a killer, we we want them to be dumb as yeah. dumb as possible. Right. Because this guy's thinking of everything. So Kemper actually fled the area and he drove to Pueblo, Colorado. And on April 23rd, um, he called Santa Cruz police and confessed. And they were like, wait, what? Big Ed? 
Um, but he led them to all the evidence they needed to prove that he was the co-ed killer. Um, October 1973, he was found guilty on all eight counts of first degree murder um, that he was charged with. Uh, the judge asked him what his punishment should be, and he said, I should be tortured to death. So they gave him eight consecutive life sentences. And he's serving his time at California facility in Vassaville, Vacaville. Um, Vacaville. Also, this is personal to us, but he learned a lot of cop behavior from cop shows. So he learned, he was like, I learned like you can't talk about crimes too much with other cops. Cause like, or he wanted to show up to the memorial services, of course. Mm -hmm. But he's like, I knew from cop shows, they look for evidence. <sighs> right. He loved watching cop shows and learning stuff. He also talks about how he's not impotent physically, but he's emotionally impotent. Like he just wasn't able to connect with anyone emotionally. Um, and he killed his mother because he wanted everyone to know this happened because of how she raised her son. Wow. He talks about how he was scared of male and female relationships and he wanted to have sex and be social and he just couldn't. So, yeah, it's just like a classic incel. Like, that's another I don't want to call him smart because it's like you just put pussy on a pedestal. And then instead of like working on your issues, you decided to like rape decapitated heads. So I don't know. Oof. Um, yeah, it's like weird. You get like brought back down to reality. I'm like, wow, he is so smart and clever. And, and then you think about the crimes and you're like, ooh, yeah. Oh, and he's what was these are just tidbits for. Okay, so what else was super interesting was when he was picking up other hitchhikers that he wasn't killing, they were all talking about this hitchhike killer. So he got off on it and he got what people thought. So it was just funny to him that these women were sitting in his car talking about who they think the hitchhiking, the co-ed killer is. Oh. But it was him and driving them which around. Which is like, which is like kind of what they're playing on in this episode of SVU when they're like, well, we've got this unsolved crime. Do you know anything about it? And he's like getting off on the fact that he knows it's him. Yeah. You know? So that was wild. And I'm sure that was an ego trip. Um, and he also like, I don't, that's why I don't like these connections or like, why else did you keep the heads? And he said, well, my father would, ch uh, chop the head off two pet chickens and my mom made me eat them for dinner. And it's like, maybe that's weird and bad, but like, that's not the reason you chop people's heads off. Right. Cause you had to eat a couple chicken heads. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's like, I'm not buying that. Um, Oh, other like young behaviors he did, you know, uh, besides like burning cats and shit. What are burying cats alive was he did not burn any cats. Okay. Um, I just can't read. Okay. He also would take his dad's bayonet and sneak out at night and spy on his teachers through the windows. <gasps> and we've seen that with other killers. Like that's why the boys will be boys or boys are just annoying or like, Oh, come on. We don't want to ruin a guy's life. Like all of these behaviors end up being yes. awful. Like we need to take violence against women so much more seriously to not, not only to help women, but like to avoid these fucking right. killers, but like kill, like harm of animals, peeping Tom stuff. It definitely is it's baby so steps to a, to a killer. Yeah. Um, Oh, after he killed his grandparents, he called his mom asking what he should do. And she told him to call the cops. So it's like you hate your mom, but you're asking her what to do with these dead parents. Like, I, I guess just, he's 15. It's like what well, he, he, he just didn't know yet. And then they asked, like, why did you do it? And he's uh, why did you kill your grandma? And he said, I just wanted to see what it felt like, which I think is wow. classic socio behavior. Yeah. Um, and then he's been in jail with Charles Manson and Hubert Mullen. And he hated Mullen, though. 
because he was just like a killer, like an idiot, like in the show, you uh-huh. know, like Huang was saying he's not going to fucking. Yeah. He's not going to talk to this guy. He's like not good enough for him. Yeah. Um. And so he was annoying this other this Mullen guy. So Kemper just like threw water at him and like beat the, and everyone was scared of Kemper. He's a giant. And he basically would like give him peanuts to behave. So then he started doing things for peanuts. And so he like manipulated Mullen to be like a little Pavlog peanut dog to do whatever he wanted <laughs> and to behave. And again, everyone loved him. He's a model in me. And then he's also like, everyone was like, hell yeah. Cause this, this Mullen guy would talk over movies and stuff and they hated how much he talked and, and Kemper got him in shape with peanuts. Um, but yeah, he's in gen pop, which is wild. Um, he helps schedule appointments for the other inmates. He makes ceramic cups like Seth Rogen. Um, and he's a prolific reader of audiobooks, and he has over 5,000 hours. Audible.com, baby. <laughs> and he runs the prison program for audiobook recordings. Wow. Um, but he had a stroke in 2015, so he couldn't do it. And then in 2016, he had his first behavior issue when he refused a urine test. But oh, and he also said that he didn't talk to the FBI to help them. But he wanted to help other people like him and encourage people with his rage and problems to not commit the crimes and that it's not worth it. And um, he wanted to be someone that they can trust to not kill because it's hard and it's hard to stop. And it is a horrible thing. And right. when you keep thinking about it, it is like a disgusting thing to take lives. So he was just trying to, like, help other wannabe killers maybe not do it. Wow. So that's what he said. Again, do we believe, you know, we I don't, know. We don't know. Yeah, he could be totally lying. It's just you just don't hear killers talk like that. Yeah. And then um, he's been denied parole like 10 times and he's up again for it in 2024. I cannot believe he's even eligible for parole. Oh, yeah, constantly. And then he's been waived. Some I thought he has eight life sentences, but I guess not with no chance of parole. All right. Look, we got to go take a little breaky and then we're going to talk to our exciting guest. <laughs> I'm very excited for this guest. Obviously, you know, I'm extra excited when I get involved in the intro. Yeah, I would say a fan favorite, a world favorite, an icon and a star. He's been in the giant uh, Jurassic Park franchise. I've loved him in the HBO series Oz. I've been a huge fan of him in Mr. Robot. And of course, you all have been fans of this Tony Award winner in his role as George Huang in SVU. Guys, we did talk to the legend B.D. Wong. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We're so excited oh, yeah, to have you. Yeah. Thanks. You're, yeah. The listeners are going to lose their shit. Yeah. We <laughs> wanted to just start out by letting you know that our fans are very, very horny and they are specifically very horny for you. Of course. Um, why, why would I not know that? <laughs> we put, we've put up polls before on like, who's your favorite. And like, there's just a lot of Huang love. Okay. That's like nice. just a lot. Outside yeah. of um, Olivia Benson, you might be the second beloved. I don't because believe everyone that. Is pr- it's no, no, no. True. Listen, because p- there are people that hate Stabler. 
and there uh, are people that love Stabler, and there's, oh, so and there's people, you know, he splits the vote. Yes. So you're, I'm t- in terms of universal adoration, it's really like it is Benson and then you. Are you talking? I mean, really? I mean, uh, this is silly for me to get <laughs> into it with you, but like, do you mean uh, really? I'm, 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 I'm just curious. Are you talking about physically? Are you talking about the whole persona of the person? What do you mean? Physically, people. I mean, people literally are like, I'm hot for Wong. Okay. Like I right. love him. Okay. Like, I, like. Yeah, so it's it's a physical thing. It's also, I think, your character. And then I don't know if this is a good thing because c- you know the like um, <laughs> the process of the episodes. But I take what Huang says as fact. Yeah, like I I often am like actually incest is not illegal if you're over the age of eighteen, and I learned that from you, <laughs> yeah. Huang. And like the pika where the boy was um, licking the car, the lead off the car. Like I say that constantly. Yeah. Well, when we, I mean that, that was one of the great things about it for me is the trust and being able to understand that whenever I had to say something or I was given something to say that I could I could trust that it, there was um, research and and fact-based stuff that went un- into it. So I didn't ever have to like question that. This sounds really ridiculous. Are you sure? Or anything like that. It, it was, it right. was reliably well-researched. So, so that is true. Yeah. That might be part. where the love comes from too, because the officers, they, you know, they'll shoot a person, like something will happen, but you're always like you and Tamara Tooney are always there with facts, with facts to help the case. There's yes. No shadiness. Yes. And then, yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder, I mean, I, I just, I don't know if this is appropriate or what, what, what our, what our game plan is for this conversation, but I mean, I mean, I am fascinated in what it is that made him popular because I never felt it when I was doing it. I just thought, Oh, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that. And then, and then um, I realized that people were really into him. In a, in a kind of big way, like you're talking about. And I and I like dissecting, maybe I'm like him in this way. I like trying to figure out why they actually um, feel that way because I'm just doing it. And I, when I watch it, and I just watched this episode, right, to, to kind of, and I haven't watched the show in a long time. And so it was really interesting to say, oh, I see uh, what it is that might be, that people might be into. I mean, he, he, he started, he and he evolved over the years too, of course. But um, I, I'm interested in that, why people are really into it. I think he was super confident about it. He never was like, oh, I'm not sure. You know, he was like never right. like that. And he was always very like knowledge based. And also he had the, the thing that Olivia has, which is this kind of morality or this sense of of what's right and, you know, doing the right thing and doing this something for someone rather than just doing it because you're supposed to, you know, because it's the law or something like that. I think what was your final episode or your final episode before you maybe came back for one time was like you were administering a drug to someone that you weren't supposed to, but you knew that was the right thing to do, you know? So that's an example. Yeah, like that. So I I guess that really um, makes an impression on people or people really believe that and really respond to that. And I like that. That's very nice. And the confidence is right on the money, too, because they all hate psychologists for some reason. Like, but you never, that Huang never like, that didn't bother him because he knew he was right. He was never intimidated by Stabler who was like shoving people into cabinets. Yes, right, right, right. Because I think your character was like very early on the mental health bandwagon. Like before now, everyone's like self-care, mental health, you know, now it's more talked about. But, you know, 1999, 2000, when the show was starting out, 
your character had all these psychological insights. And I think that's, it, I mean, it's a very female fan base. Yes. And I think that's like what draws people to your character. And there is a real um, surge or a kind of a trend of young female fans of the show who entered the field that I hear about all the time that, that a young woman will say, I watched the show and that that's what I decided to do with my life because I was so taken with the vocation. That's and it's, amazing. it's never been a man that said this to me. I can't recall a man has ever said it to me. I think it's almost <laughs> always a young woman who is just, it just opened their heart in a way or something. And that's, that's nice. So great. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about like your history, like how you got into it? So like you originally were on just for like two episodes in season two. I think it was four were... maybe. Oh, okay. I think originally they said, we're going to try this out for four uh, singletons. From what we looked up for was when you became a regular. And then yeah. you were doing so some four, before. Yeah. I did, you know, they, they signed me up to do four. Hey, we want to try this new character out. And it's, it's four. And, and Neil Bear had just come into the show. And Neil Bear was, was hellbent to bring a medical perspective to the show being a doctor himself and thinking mm -hmm. that the medical and psychological perspective was going to be valuable to this particular show. And he was right. I think I feel like that's something that's not as present in the show as it used to be. And, and, and while I was there, it felt really like an, a part of the identity of the show for the time that I was there. Yeah, you're right. I didn't realize that they kind of have moved away from that a little bit. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, you start out, Still, the opening of the show is still exactly the same as it ever was, if, if I, as, if, unless I'm wrong. Yes. And, and that is saying, you know what, these are like really intense people and they did, they did this terrible things. And so what goes hand in hand with that is why, how or, you know, um, all of that. And so so Neil was very keen in kind of creating that character and that perspective and they did continue on with it and they picked up the option and I, and I was given a contract. And is that, that, that was, is that the answer to the question that you're yeah, asking? Yeah. We just, I, I was sort of just wondering if like, did you know that you were going to be on for a, or did you know like that it was sort of like a trial run for a longer part? Yes. And so, okay. And um, I, I knew it was a trial run for a longer part. And I, my son had just been born and I didn't want to leave New York. And I felt it was the luckiest thing ever. If I were to be able to ask to be stay, if I didn't, you know, blow it or whatever. And, and, um, so I, I was, it was the luckiest thing that could ever happen to a person. Actually, I, I was able to get the, the closest thing to, um, what you call a, what is it, a normal job? You know, it was like, it yeah. felt like a real and normal job, <laughs> a nine to five, a nine to five job. job. And, and, and as an actor, that's just something that doesn't happen. And, and, and particularly now with in cable and all of that stuff, you, there's no such thing as a 23 episode season. Uh, and that right. is what ensures a real a kind of steadiness that is really great when you're, uh, you know, uh, starting a family and stuff. And, yeah. and so that was really fortunate for me. And I'm extremely grateful to everybody that made that happen, of course, because of the historic, the, the role that it plays in my family's history. And then like along with starting a family, like were you able to also sort of stay in the Broadway like flow of things since the show could kind of maybe I don't know if they like work around your schedule or you don't do nights or yes and no I mean I believe I was doing a Broadway show in 2004 and I was already on the show in 2002 wasn't I mm -hmm. it was 2002 I think and so I did I know that um, if I look at my resume and look at the bi my own biography <laughs> I see oh I did this Broadway show in 2003 slash 2004 so there was some reason that I was able to do that eventually when i got deeper into the show i was able to 
um, wangle out of them an ability to do a play. Like I did a play at least once uh, in the mid aughts. Um, and that meant that they had to give me a, a what they'd call a, a hard out, which is that half an hour before the show, I'd have to be at the theater at a certain part of the town and they'd have to shoot me out or make sure that I got out, which they really don't like doing. But they I'd been there <laughs> long enough, I think. And then and I think they knew that my part was not like the biggest part in the show and that they could they we had been able to work around things up until that point. So they they allowed me to do it. Another thing I'm super grateful for, because it really kept my life much more interesting. And I was able to kind of do the things that um, really work for me as, while I was doing this other thing that did kind of feel like a little bit more like a job. And so I um, that was great for me. Well, there's also, you know, it's shot in, a, in, a, in like a, almost like a school year. You have like a summer off. And so there are lots of things. I did lots of shows and plays during the time that I was on the show. Um, because I could do a regional production of a, of a play somewhere or a musical somewhere in the country, elsewhere in the country, uh, during the time that was the hiatus. Amazing. Well, so we talked to Margaret Cho a few months ago, and she yeah. said, we were like, if you were to come back as a different character, who would it be? And she said... Huang's uh, sister. Oh, and I that love you do it. have a sister, and she would love to play your sister. Oh, I love Is there it. Any chance you two guys would come back and yeah? Do what's that? the what are the chances of Huang's return? And then we have to get Cho to be your sister. <laughs> to be your sister. There, uh, you know, there's no there. I have no barrier to coming back at all. <laughs> I mean, there's no. I mean, I wouldn't want to come back um, in a kind of super binding way. <laughs> you know, like I, I like I love the way it is now. When when Warren Light feels like there's a, there's an opening or there's a reason and and. Then then he'll have me come back and, and I'll I've come back maybe twice, I think. And there was another opportunity that just kind of came and went because of COVID. It was really impossible to kind of put, uh, just bring somebody in and, in, in, you know, you have so much has to go into uh, bringing actors in and off on and off a show now uh, or has been in the last few months that mm -hmm. a lot more preparation has to go into it. They can't just kind of decide, oh, let's do it two weeks from now. Let's make sure that we have a Huang scene going on. They, they can't do it as easily as they used to. So, but the time will come around again when that, that is able to happen. And I'm, I, of course I would do it. Of course I would do it, especially if Margaret was yeah. going to be my sister. And they um, need to do Margaret as a serial killer because she said she wanted to play a serial yeah, killer. Who's also my sister. Yeah, yes. you get brought back because you have double insight. Yes, you have yes, your psychological background and wow. then your sister. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just working on a spec script. Yeah, so I just I, I'm, I would. I'm into it. I would do anything with Margaret ever, 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 ever. Yeah, she's fantastic. Absolutely. So we both listened to Les Culturistas. You did. I, yeah, of oh, yeah. I, I mean, I am a big fan of Bowen and Matt. Yes, we both are. me too. I listen all the time on my, well, I'm getting my steps in. And <laughs> you did mention that you wish there was like, more about your character and we knew more and there was more background and like depth shown throughout the years. And I was wondering if you had created any of that that you wish was shown or like what background you had for the character. I didn't actually. I might more now that I'm a different, I mean, I've evolved over my process or whatever. I feel like I might, I might be different now. 
but you know, I think I was kind of aware of the show that I was on. Like this is the show that I'm on and this is what is, these are the parameters of the show. And, 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 and ultimately I did kind of whine about it to myself and to my inner circle about, you know, about it, it kind of having an identity that was very consistent, which I think the fans love and everybody loves. But for me, it wasn't super stimulating. And mm -hmm. as you probably can tell, I'm extremely grateful for it. And I don't mean to be whiny about it, but I, I did feel as an actor, as a creative person, it didn't challenge me that much. And so I was, I, I, I tended to be kind of very neutral about it. You know, I was like, well, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. And it's very, very, there's it a very um, specific set of things that I'm achieving by doing it. And, and, and then I'm really happy with it. And that's perfectly good. But so therefore, to make a short story long, I felt like there wasn't a lot of room for it. And I also, I didn't want to make things up that were not uh, going to be right. And the perfect example of this is like, like the 11th hour when he came out, I was like, oh, I wasn't nobody we didn't talk about this like where did that yeah. come from and and there was a there was a sense and that was when i kind of went oh you guys you know i felt kind of like that was um i don't know how to describe it it wasn't a detail that felt that organic to me i mean i and i and i'm and at the same time i'm all all for the what's the difference it doesn't matter at all i mean gay people are are all different kinds of people. And this person could certainly be a gay person. There's no reason for them not to be. But the way that I had thought in my mind he was, and the, the, from some, some very minor comments throughout about dating girls or something like that, I didn't, didn't, wasn't there with that. It wasn't on, it was a surprise to me. And, and it was a surprise that kind of sh um, served that particular storyline. It was like, it was kind of convenient, I think. Yeah. But that is the kind of show that I was on. That was the kind of show that at that moment in time, very late in the game, they could do that and it was OK. But they did do that because nothing else was ever discussed. Like we they, it, right. it was, they was able to do that because all the details were left out prior to that. So then the, the opportunities are greater and they, they left their, their options open in some ways by not being more specific about who he was or where he came from. Yeah. And I feel like now if you if your character was like, that was a now or in a more recent season that I think they would have gotten more into it. They seem to oh, sure. now be getting more into like one character's gambling addiction, one character's issue with this, you know, like they definitely get more into the personal lives of the characters. I feel like where at the beginning it was like, you just saw a little bit of Stabler and Benson's personal life, but everyone that's else right. was sort of like just outside of that. Yes, that's right. And so I see what you're saying completely. Cause that was what the show was doing at that time was like, you know, yes. And I think I, I felt like, Oh, I want that. I want a little bit of personal mm -hmm. about me there. And there was, there were moments where there were uh, Huang heavy episodes and yet it never felt to me like enough or it never felt like as much as it could be, but that's it. I mean, I don't really I don't have much more of a complaint about it than that. That's just that is, as I said before, the way that the identity of the show and it would be mm -hmm. dumb of me to buck against the identity of this bigger show that I am a part of by thinking other that it should be any other way than the way it was. Yeah. Right. Another thing I keep saying, I've it's been in my head since the Las Culturistas episode. I keep going, we love a moral queen just to nobody <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, he uh, they have I don't remember who said it, 
I think it was Matt. Yeah. Matt said it yeah. about Marishka, right? I don't know. Their phraseology is just fucking amazing. They're just great. Yeah, the they have like their own lexicon yes. for sure. And you know exactly what he's talking about when he says it. So it's not like some foreign language or anything like that. But it's not something it's not exactly how I would have put it. But that's exactly true. <laughs> and it's true. She's the moral center and she, you know, it's great. That is a, a the engine that that drives the show, I think. Is mm-hmm. victims' rights and the, the undercurrent of victims' rights and what what we're doing for these victims and how we're serving them as a community of professionals. Um, I think that's an undercurrent in the show that is perceivable to the average audience member on some level. Yeah, Peter Scanavino, who's a detect a current detective, he said the reason women love the show so much is because women are listened to, and that's like uh, in it, yeah, a, a rare thing. Yes, that's right. It's like porn for women. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it's interesting what you said before, too, about how your character was also, like, yeah, more sensitive, listened to people, yeah. and kind of got to that. Like, whereas you had Munch with conspiracy theories, Ice-T's this hard-ass, Maloney's, like, you know, toxic masculinity personified. So, like, your character is sort of like this, like, other, like, uh, another companion color. to Olivia. Yeah. Oh, yes. And of course, the Olivia George relationship was the only relationship I had in the show. And so mm. that was of great comfort to me, actually, and of great, um, uh, you know, I was really into that. And and we always made jokes about it because there was hardly ever a moment when we really it happens on very specific occasions that our relationship is even a little bit, you know, uh, dealt with or illuminated. And yet it really kind of carried me through the whole thing. That was the that was the most interesting and fun part of the of the character for me is his relationship to her. Mm. Do you are you and Marishka still in touch? Uh, not. Um, yes and no. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're in touch, but really not in a daily way or in a right. thing. And I, and I do miss that because she's just kind of such a great person. I'm in touch more with Stephanie. Um, Stephanie oh, and, okay. and so Stephanie and I kind of, uh, and but Stephanie and Marishka are also very tight. So you know, peripherally, there's a kind of um, um, keeping track of people in that way. Yeah, that seems like a, a scoop that I like to. Yeah, <laughs> that you. And well, we talked to Captain Cragen, and he had just texted Marishka for her birthday. So we're just interested. Yes, in right. right. <laughs> I just texted uh, Stephanie today because I, I was at a restaurant, and I said. Have you, have you been to this restaurant? This is an incredible <laughs> restaurant. And of course she had been there. She knows every single restaurant in New York. That's Wait, any what good. was it? Wyon, W-A-Y-A-N in um, All right. um, uh, the Lower East Side or the um, uh, kind of the Lower East Side is Chinatown. Yeah. Next trip to uh, next trip to NYC. So your first episode is peak and yes. it's wild. Were you like, holy shit, they're really throwing me into this. What have I gotten myself <laughs> into? Like the end, he's just in bed with his, he killed someone. He's like licking his a brush. Mother. Yeah, yes. there's blood yes. everywhere. It was like such a wild first episode. I think, th- you know, this is really interesting for me because um, <laughs> watching the show again in a way, and I haven't watched the show um, uh, at all for, for years and years, and then kind of transporting myself back in time to my state of mind at the time, I don't think I was as aware of what, you know, like you said, what I was getting myself into. I was kind of just professionally kind of committing myself to the thing. I didn't really, first of all, the character, it felt very procedural to me. I didn't know what his personality was. I just knew what his job was. 
And so as as I knew, as I continued to understand what his job was, then his behavior and his demeanor became clearer because he spoke a certain way. Then they always wrote that very consistently. And that's how the character kind of grew. I wasn't like, oh, he's a guy who dot, 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 or this is the character that um, from a more personal standpoint, it was more clinical. It was more like I was serving a purpose and I could mm -hmm. understand the role based upon serving the purpose. So then when I look back on it, I think, oh, wow, there was this. And maybe that's what created for me a sense of not leaning into how depraved people were, allowing me to be neutral about it and clinical about it, because I never kind of went, oh, God, you guys, this is really like upsetting. I didn't really <laughs> ever play it that way. I never felt like the need to do that because it just felt like, oh, no, he's kind of a clinician and he's also on some level, a therapist. And so he's always going to be kind of neutral and objective. And I was maybe just starting my own therapy at the time where I were, realized that objectivity and a, a person not expressing their actual opinion in a therapy session was so valuable and so interesting and so good. And, and for a character, and I, and I now to this day will watch therapy scenes in other shows and think, no, oh, I think you're showing what you think about what's actually happening in this, in a way that's not actually what would actually happen because therapists go out of their way to just be really kind of blank and say, well, what does, what does that make you feel? I, as opposed to, you know, doesn't that make you feel upset? They would never say, doesn't that make you feel upset? They'd say, how does it make you feel? There's a very slight difference, but I think it is a big difference in uh, George's whole persona that he bases everything on that kind of neutrality. To answer your question, I didn't really feel like I was, I didn't understand as, as I do now looking back, the who of it as I do now looking back on it. And you always mm -hmm. watch, you, I, you often look at things from your past, past work and kind of judge it and say you do it differently or whatever. Um, but I, I was a little naive about it. I was like, kind of, okay, so this is the part. He's the anal analyst to this kind of um, into the mind of and the killer or whatever or the the perpetrator and i can i understand that he'll come in and report on these things and i was you know experimenting with all these crazy things like i had a i actually had a a, a british accent in the first episode and then we i redubbed the whole episode oh you, i was like i don't really oh, wow we also noticed that you had glasses yeah. at the beginning. And then they, they just, there was just the first episode. And then it's like, no, no, no glasses. Bye bye. And <laughs> I was, I was, you know, I, I come from, this is a very interesting, now that you're pointing this out, I'm realizing what happened actually, is that I have, I came from a background of being what I would call a character actor, an actor that is not, um, not, not mining my own personality, but looking for another personality to play. And I had done this in a lot of movies prior to this. Like my, my work was generated in, in the theater, certainly as well, by adopting characters. And so here I came into the first day of this series, um, my first of four like trial episodes, and I wanted glasses, I wanted to have an accent, and I wanted to create a person. And then after that first episode, I was talked out of it, but I also talked myself out of it going, oh, I see, it's just me on a procedural. And I just can just kind of like ride the wave of me talking the way that I talk and looking the way that I look. And that was refreshing for me. 
for a while. And then (laughs) I stayed on the show as long as I did. And then when I finally moved on from the show, it took me and my representatives and in my career a couple of years to get my footing back uh, where I have now again i feel like i'm a compl- I'm, I'm back in character land which i am more comfortable in and where i where each time i go into a new job i'm looking for the glasses and the accent like i really am embracing that again and and that i see that other people are hiring me that way but for a minute after coming out of a procedural people are like well what do, what do you bring to the table you know not you know and 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 that was really interesting i kind of became this procedural guy for um, 11 years and, and then had to kind of figure out how to get back and find myself again. And I think that was one of the reasons why I did move on from it because I, I didn't feel like I was really myself as a performer. So we having you on, obviously, because we want to talk to you about all 200 episodes that you were on <laughs> in the show. Um, so if we could just start from the top. No, we, we actually, this is part, going to be part of the episode execution, which we picked because we thought that was like sort of like a Huang heavy episode, uh-huh. like where you thrown got into to, a wall. Yeah, you got thrown into a wall. You got to sort of you got to sort of really like big time Christopher Maloney, which is fun. Yeah. Like, you know, he thinks he's sort of running this serial killer uh, interrogation and you're like, I'm in charge. So do you, do you remember anything about that episode? Or like, oh, you watched it before you. Oh, yeah. I'm you know, I, I'm not messing around here. Um, Thank I, you. I, and that's why I was late coming to you. I mean, just full disclosure <laughs> to everyone out there. I came 15 minutes late because I said, oh, I need 15 more minutes to finish this show. The best part of it was the last 15 minutes. You to watch your slammed against a wall. Yes, for the second time. <laughs> and I remember a lot about it. One, it was, it, it was, I don't know if you've gone over this with people before. You probably have. SVU, at least in certain times of its history, has been famous for um, really long hours. And mm. um, uh, especially on a Friday night, because the turnaround of, of time that you have to give the crew off, uh, if you start at five o'clock in the morning on a Monday and you end at 730, then you have to turn the crew around. So then the next day you don't start at 530, you start at seven. And then by Friday, if you are uh, shooting in a leisurely fashion and you're not on the schedule, you could be starting at 10 or 11 in the morning or noon and going until two or three in the morning and um, of on Saturday, it's called a fratter day um, on our, <laughs> on our, in, in the SVU and SVU for a stretch of the time that I was there was, uh, was, it was no choice and it really wears people down. It's very exhausting, but there's a kind of um, in the trenches feeling to it, you know, at ri- and I know that these scenes with Nick Chenlin in the interrogation room were at one o'clock in the morning, what I imagine was a Friday night. It might have been a Thursday night, but it was either a Thursday or Friday night. And it's one. And I, I remember thinking for some reason, oh, I'm never going to forget how this feels, which is I'm exhausted and we're having to play this really kind of intense scene. And there was a, a sense somehow. And I think you can sense it in the final cut of the show that it's a unique episode. Like th- those scenes with him are l- more like a movie than they're than they're in a TV show or more like a interrogation scene in a in a film like way than even the regular interrogation scenes that we have in SVU. And so there was that as part of it. And then Nick Chinlin, do you have you ever had him on? No, we haven't. But we know he was originally um, auditioning to be the role of Stabler. Yes. And that was kind of that's kind of the trivia that I think is the most the greatest trivia about that episode. 
And you can see, you know, what, where that might have come from. Yeah, it's very like, it's very Silence of the Lambs. Yes, it's very it's Silence like of the very, it's, it, it reminds me of sort of the scenes that you see in Mindhunter, which is like the case that we think this episode's based off of is like the interview with Ed, Ed Kemper, yeah. like a famous serial killer. And like, there's videos of that. But yeah, it is more cinematic almost this episode. Well, how about the stuff, like getting your head slammed against the wall? Was that you? Did you, did you have a stunt person or like, yeah. how were they? No, no, they, I did it. And I, and I learned, I mean, I knew how to exactly how to have a little bit of experience, like, you know, how to make yourself look like you're getting slammed against the wall when you're really not. And you have to work with the other actor to do that. And they always have somebody there addressed like you to step in at any moment. And then they always ask you, what do you feel, feel about this? What's your comfort level actually doing it yourself? And there are times when they want to use a stunt person and you go, oh, I really, really want to do this. And, and the, what I think we thought at this point is, well, it really will be good if it looks like it's my face. You can see my face there and you really can. You can see that it's my face. Yeah. And then I remember thinking, oh, my mom's going to hate this. This is like really <laughs> ups intense, you know, and other people like I remember people calling me or texting me after it came on, probably calling me. And saying, oh, my God, that's that was really intense. I didn't like seeing that, you know, people that know me and like me. Uh, So there was that. And I look back at it now and I always felt um, to be a little self-critical that there were some really subtle things in that show that we didn't actually nail. And that could have been if it was a film, we might have been able to kind of explore. One of them is the moment before in the opening of this show where he's about to snap and I see that he's about to snap. And then I warn Stabler and the whole thing goes crazy because he does in fact snap. And the warning signs I don't think are as clear as as they were indicated in the script. And we weren't all kind of, it, uh, we, we could have used a little bit more rehearsal is what I think we could have done. <laughs> but I think it, was, it actually plays quite beautifully. But I do watch it and go, oh yeah, there's that thing where he says, Watch out for these things. And then we see those things actually happening. And then we start getting nervous because we know that, oh, my gosh, he's going to start unraveling. And, OK, I'm going to go over and push the button on the on the wall and, and, and we're going to get the, the people to come in. And that somehow never had the same impact that I pictured it happening in my mind. But I still think it's really great. And I think that <laughs> Nick did, made a, gave a great performance. And was really appropriately kind of uh, Hannibal Lecter-ish. Um, I was going to ask you really quickly about um, this episode where, because um, like you have this really interesting episode with with Stabler too, like because you know he'll try to sort of put you down because he's not into psychologists, like Lisa mentioned, or he's not into psychiatry, and then you can sort of stand up to him. But then you're you've also been this like shoulder for him to cry on in many different episodes. Like we just yeah. did mm-hmm. um, Fault recently, the episode with Lou Diamond Phillips, where he like murders a child in Elliot's you know moments away from saving the child, and he. He goes to Huang like that's who he goes to for like his yeah like you know to talk out his feelings um so I was just wondering like what was your relationship like with like with like uh Chris Maloney and like you know well and you had known him for a long time yeah oh yeah from I Austin, had known I him for a long time and I and I <laughs> love him I think he's a very special person actually he's a he's a very um he presents a certain thing. He certainly presents a certain things on those, on these two shows. And he's aware of that presence and he's aware of the power of that. And so as a result, he undercuts it with humor and he undercuts um, all of that intenseness with um, 
a, a kind of boyish kind of humor, like a kind of, a, a, you know, like a silliness, actually. And, 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 and on the set, and he is um, famous kind of for creating a sense of joviality on the set when all these crazy things are happening, you know, when all these terrible things are happening in the show. And in a way that's, it's, that's a very endearing. And I always liked playing scenes with him. And I, I certainly always liked in the show whenever somebody came to me personally, which happened with um, um, mostly with with Olivia and mostly with Elliot a little bit. I don't know if anybody else really actually did it that much. But but when that, when that happened, I always felt, oh, good. Like this is a chance for me to be a person. And to not be relating this all to facts or, you know, research or whatever my my training. But and yet my training, of course, plays a role in and actually helping somebody kind of get through something, whatever it might be. And I loved those kinds of scenes. I love, love, love them. They were, I was better in those scenes than I was in, in the, the, cl the clinical scenes, I think. Whenever somebody asked me for my advice or, or, or if I was able to say, hey, are you OK? That, that always is better. So I, I do I don't remember specifically the day that we shot any of those scenes with <laughs> with Chris, but I do remember it, it re, sincerely remember enjoying those scenes and going, oh, look at us. We have a scene. We're having a scene yeah. together right now. And actors do this all the time where they go, oh, look at us. We're in a scene together. We haven't been in a scene all season. And and that's always a kind of fun thing to notice and enjoy and and, and stuff like that. Do you have any thoughts on his new um, asses fame? His butt's all over. Oh, uh, <laughs> is this, are you not his, on the internet his, as much as me? I'm not on the <laughs> internet as much as you, but all I can say is I know exactly. I mean, I, I'm guessing what I, what you're talking about. And I'm going to say, well, <laughs> what, you know, what has taken so long? Really? Yeah. Right. Uh, any of us who watched the first five years of, uh, right. of and, you know, and and again, I will say I'm going to throw him under the bus. Right. I mean, I have no problem throwing him under the bus. He is so aware of this. And he will stick it in your face. Oh, he's been like responding to people yeah. on Twitter, people asking him, like, how do you have these big cakes? And he like writes back. Yeah. Like, oh, well, he'll tell you. I mean, it's a formula. And if you want to do it, you could have cakes like that, too. But it is a lot of work. And he's yeah. a very disciplined guy. And, and um, you know, <laughs> kudos to him for yeah. owning it. Right. And here we are, you know, we're we're 60, you know, so. You know, this is the, the time of your life when Which you I have thought to start. Which I thought was a vicious online rumor about you. That makes uh, no sense to me that you're 60. Well, <laughs> thanks. I mean, yeah. I think Chris and I are basically the same age. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, Him too, yeah. Yeah. You both look like, I don't know, nothing's changed. Well, I, no. No, you're wrong. Because I watched this, <laughs> I just watched the show and I think, yes, plenty has changed. And I am, I'm watching it. It's me. I'm watching my own face and watching Stephanie and I'm watching Chris and I'm watching Marisha and her little pixie haircut. And I'm going, wow, look at this people. Who are those yeah. people? <laughs> I, and it's wonderful. It's, it's very nice. So what are you working on now? I know you just, I think you just wrapped on Nora from Queens, another season of Nora yes. from Queens. And I do love that show. And that has been really a good show for me. and to me and and you know the first episode the first uh, season i enjoyed very much and i enjoyed the second season even more um getting to know all these people even better and loving them and and becoming closer to them has been a big part of that but also my involvement in the show has deepened and my uh, role in the show in some ways has deepened 
And so, and I directed an episode this year. Oh, cool. And so I'm, I'm super into it. I highly recommend it. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not sure what the crossover from SVU to Nora from Queens is, but um, if you are so inclined, I would, t- I would tell people I to check it out. I bet it's not, I bet it's not small. I mean, a lot of Who these knows? Yeah. people that listen to our podcast, at least like comedy. Yes. We're comedians. So, yes. And you yeah, talk about so- Bowen and, and, and Bowen's the. Our touchstone, right? Our our common right. thread. He's our common denominator. Yeah. And I've I've worked uh, with Aquafina once before, uh-huh. and she was lovely and so great and funny. And I also loved hearing you on Las Culturistas uh, talk about how nice it was to be able to have relatability with your co-stars in a way that you haven't been able to before. Having yeah. such a nice large Asian cast, like yeah. like Bone was talking about some kind of mushrooms, and that like he's never been on a set where like everyone's eating the mushrooms. Yeah, that's right. And I just thought that was beautiful. Yes, it, it is beautiful. And it's it's something that I think is really um valuable for someone like Bowen to point out because people that don't have that experience or people can relate to it in their own sphere in one way or another. Women or 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 women people of a certain age or whatever it is that they're that they're when you're in a group of of people in which you can all overlap with some kind of experience or some kind of um, commonality, then you're, you, you, there's a bond that, that occurs whether you want to or not. And, and so with Asian people, and it's particularly with Asian people in the media, in television, where we feel a little bit left out sometimes, that cohesion is quite powerful, actually. It's like, wow, I didn't even know I was missing this. And now I realize how robbed i feel uh, that i haven't had this every day of my life this whole mushrooms conversation this whole idea that um i can be i have shorthand with people shorthand is part of it i think and do you want to direct more i do yeah i've always been a director i was i directed when i was you know theater and everything back in when i was in high school i i had this great relationship with a teacher who encouraged me to do lots of different things and then as luck would have it i concentrated on being an actor really to be quite honest and it is only now that i'm like saying no but i really want to be doing these other things and i've never really been able to concentrate on them so uh, uh, being able to do that on 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 the aquafina show was really really great for me really kind of uh, it felt like a door opening kind of Lisa, I don't know. I'm still shocked and stunned. <laughs> what I mean, we just I'm so excited. People have been talking to us about getting BD Wong on the show. And I'm just so excited we were able to do it. And he is a dream person. I We could have talked to him for so much longer. Yeah, I also like that we had to like he didn't let us off the hook. And he was like, why do people like me? I need to know the exact reasons. <laughs> Um, so I liked doing, I liked that. That was, <laughs> that was really fun. No, he's um, so good. And I love people where you could tell they love their craft and what they do and are like so thoughtful and so giving with their time and answers. And I've just been obsessed with him for decades. It is crazy to be like, you were in father of the, you've been in my life for decades. Yeah. But I guess so many of the SVU cast has, but yeah, you know, and I have to say always nice when a guest rewatches an episode their episode that we're going to talk about always nice when they take the time and i love that bd also knows that george huang is the truth you know what i mean yes. like, i thought he was going to school me and be like please stop taking what he says as fact but i love that he was like no yeah i think no. that show is too research it's too based in research and fact for them to be like me i think they stretch shit sometimes but huang is an encyclopedia 
Well, okay. So for our postmortem, besides learning that BD Wong is amazing, what did we learn from today's episode? I mean, hitchhiking is just not an option. Don't do it. Yeah, no hitchhiking, especially now with all of our phones and all the options that right, we have. There's right. really, you know, this was a while ago. So good for technology. Bad if your phone dies. I mean, I don't know. It's scary out there. Right. Um, I mean, there's not that much like like the the execution episode is like so specific and it's so about like a truly deranged like serial killer. So I don't know how much we like learned specifically from it, but I guess um, Alex Cabot is a fucking boss and Ty Burrell's character can go screw like he thought you're good. You're good, Alex, but you're not spectacular. Mm, I think we found out who was spectacular in the end, didn't we? Yeah, but also like um don't hang out with killers um when the shift change is about to happen. That's oh, now yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a good that's a good thing. When you're scheduling your visit with a serial killer, make sure that it is not during a shift change. <laughs> yeah. Or like the week before he's about to get killed. I don't know. It's um it, it's just testy stuff. It is I mean, that's what I wanted to do when I was a young girl before I realized, you know, I'm not really into academics, but I wanted to like work in prisons and talk to killers. And then I was like, I'd rather have a good time than um, look at gray walls. (laughs) I don't think I could do it. But from the kill also, like um, if someone uh, murders a bunch of people at age 15, don't let them out at 21. Is that this crime or no? I get everything confused. No, you're right. That's Ed Kemper. (laughs) He killed his grandparents and then he killed more, many more people. Yeah. Like leave them in jail. It's just like, it's so frustrating. I know we touch on this a lot, but that we have people sitting in prison for like tiny amounts of Coke or weed or something, or uh, I don't know, robbing some stuff. And then you have people who murdered family members that are like, yeah, have fun out there. Mm -hmm. Peace out. Go back, go back and kill more people. Like it's so fucked up. Um, When you start dating someone or meeting someone or anything, Figure out what their relationship with their mother is like. I think that's important. (laughs) I think we need to know how you feel about your mother and make sure um, it's good. And if not, yeah, if you've ever had the urge to cut out your mom's vocal cords, I don't think we're getting a second Bumble date. You know, I keep talking about the larynx to everybody and it really upsets people, but I can't stop bringing it into normal conversations. Yeah, that seems very on brand for you, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) I also think I also think that this episode like brings up a very um, interesting issue about um, death penalty. You know, I'm anti death penalty mostly. I mean, I am. I'm anti death penalty. (laughs) And I think it's just like. Uh, what that father was saying of the other um, the cellmates victim, like when you when this happens to you, like the wound never closes. Like, I don't think killing the killer closes that wound for you. And it also is certainly not going to close a wound for like possible other victims that exist that this person is going to the grave with the information about. So just one example of why I, I don't believe in the death penalty. But well, how are you better than anyone when you're doing the crime? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And actually, um, uh, a few episodes ago, I mentioned the sociologists in that HBO show, Crazy Not Insane. And one of the things she did was she talked to a professional executioner who's like a traveling executioner. And he goes from town to town executing people. Oh, my God. And that's his job. And she said that talking to him was the first time she actually felt scared and like talking to a true psychopath because so many of the other killers were mentally ill. But he doesn't even realize that he had trauma and how it's affected him and how 
being an executioner does affect his psyche. Right. And he started showing her. So I guess after he does an execution, he goes and paints. He blacks out and paints. And the paintings were so scary. But he saw no problems and was just like, yep, that's what I do. And it's just interesting. And so to me, it's like we can't punish killers by killing because you become that killer. Like it's um I don't think it's good for anyone or society. And I don't think it's a deterrent. I really don't think it's a deterrent. Like, I don't think when people are committing these crimes, they're not like, "Mm, am I going to die on death row? Like, that's just not I don't think it's a deterrent. And we didn't talk about this, but it's also like so many people are killed and then evidence comes out, you know, that they didn't do it. And like, that's reason enough. Right, right. So, but this is a larger conversation, obviously, but, uh, we, how many essays did you write about this in high school? This was like, I have, I've written a lot. I did do a capital punishment essay one time, I think in middle school. God, I'd love to get my hands on that. I'm going to see if I can get through some old boxes. That was my senior thesis. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, we're posting that as a PDF in our mensch, in our stories, please. We're going to post it. Um, all right. So for today's What Was Sister Peg Do, which is, you know, our weekly segment where we direct you towards resources that can give you more information on the subject in today's episode, um, we thought we'd point you towards a book written by Robert Ressler, the man who interviewed Ed Kemper and Tom Schachtman as well. It's called Whoever Fights Monsters, colon, My 20 Years Tracking Serial Killers for the FBI. And Robert K. Ressler is the man who invented the term serial killer. So definitely interesting to read his words and thoughts on the subject if you're a true crime nut um so check that out and please join us next week we will be covering the episode lessons learned season 14 episode 8 and as always those are on hulu and peacock or you could check out your local library and next time you hear from us there will be a clank a new clank another baby so (laughs) get ready uh for baby gossip a logan i guess technically but yeah i refused are you kidding (laughs) thank you so much bye bye that's messed up is an exactly right production if you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover shoot us an email at that's messed up pod at gmail.com follow the podcast on instagram at that's messed up pod and on twitter at messed up pod and follow us personally at kara clank and at glitter cheese As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>